if our technology was in the hands of the physicians are seeing us, seeing me and talking to my family, this wouldn't have be happening. Like I would have found out that I have cancer before before I did, and I will have much better opportunities to to challenge this and to overcome the disease or the, the condition. So we got to see in first firsthand how badly structured the system is, how derailed are the incentives, and how how much does a single month affect the survival chances of an oncology patient. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators reimagining the future of health. I'm your host, Logan Plaster. Every company in the Startup Health portfolio can draw a line between their business objectives and a very real human impact. Even companies working on highly technical or administrative solutions are doing so at the end of the day in order to help people get the care they need faster or better. Our stance is that no database integration, supply chain management tool, or insurance platform should exist apart from this ability to improve lives. In other words, health innovation is personal. For some founders, like my guest today, that human face of healthcare technology is startlingly clear. My guest is Luis Santiago, the CEO and co-founder of Pegasi, which Startup Health backed in 2020. Pegasi is in the business of digitizing health information systems in Latin America, and they're focusing on upgrading those systems within oncology so that cancer patients can get diagnosed and treated faster. That mission gained a tragic level of clarity this year as Pegasi's CTO, John Per Garvey, went through a devastating battle with cancer. Luis Santiago shares that personal story and how it could have ended differently had the hospital been using a digital platform to speed up diagnosis and treatment. But this isn't just a story about what could have been, but how a tragedy becomes fuel for a health moonshot that could improve the lives of millions of people. Without further ado, here's my interview with Luis Santiago. Luis Santiago, thank you so much for joining me today for Startup Health Now. Thank you very much, Logan. It's great to be here and, and to be with the Startup Health family. Uh, the Health Transformers Network is a, a very close part of uh, Pegasi's uh, family in our hearts. We're here to talk about Pegasi, this company that you've started, and just the journey that you've gone over, and some of the very personal things that have happened within the company that have spurred you you know, even further on. So let's start with a, a one minute flyover of, of what you've built with Pegasi, kind of where it's at right now. Then we'll unpack kind of where you come from and, and more of the story, but just introduce yourself to our, to our listeners. Well, thank you, uh, Logan. Uh, Pegasi is a company that's dedicated to the smart management of healthcare information for the developing world. Uh, our focus is making this information accessible, clear, and useful for patients, physicians, and service providers. Um, given the last uh, few months where we've seen that we can have a huge impact is the, the oncology industry, where there's a huge need for digital transformation. So we focus ourselves into developing oncology information systems. And as you said, there's a very personal story that has happened inside of the company that has validated that what we are doing is uh, something that can have a very, very big impact 
in the lives of many Latin Americans and hopefully many people in the world. Okay, so information systems, uh, focusing now in on, on oncology. So let's step back from that a minute and let's understand a bit about who you are, Luis. Where are you from? How did you get into healthcare technology? Um, yeah, I'm a second generation entrepreneur in my family. Uh, my dad used to be in the oil industry in Venezuela, one of the first people that learned how to code in the country. And at some point in his career, he had the opportunity to develop a healthcare information system for a very large oil industry hospitals. This was 400 beds. And after that point, when he resigned the, the, the oil industry, he decided to stay specifically developing systems for hospitals. And as he saw, that a digital transformation had a very big impact in how well you can manage patients. So he spent from 1992, uh, since, well, until today, he's my co-founder, uh, developing healthcare information systems. And uh, I st uh, started on the footsteps of uh, the company that he had founded in 2008 when I graduated college. And now I've been uh, 14 years into product ownership uh, developing products for healthcare information systems, and um, also having a lot of experience into digital transformation, more on the human side as well. Like uh, implementing a system is not just clicking some buttons on a server or having someone accessing a platform. It's all about how you translate their businesses processes and uh, get them into a platform. So those are like my two let's say experiences stronger experiences is uh first uh of course designing uh products and services that can help digital transformation in the healthcare sector but i think the second and the, and the, the strongest that i have is uh taking the information workflows or taking the process workflows that happen in healthcare and translating them into software so you, you have a very seamless uh translation of their processes into uh a digital format now, now you started your career in venezuela you said you're from venezuela yeah exactly i am from venezuela um but, you're, been, but your focus yeah, is in, on, on latin america more generally kind of where have you worked and focused so far yeah we, we have a focus on latin america specifically uh we currently have operations in uh, Venezuela, of course, we we have a lot of clients there: Dominican Republic, Chile, Ecuador, Peru, and Colombia. Those are the countries that we are covering with Pegasi right now. Um, originally, and until like 2016, uh, most of our customers were in Venezuela. We are very very few Venezuelans that went abroad. Uh, those were customers in other countries. But now, right now, we serve six countries uh, with Pegasi. Help us understand a picture of the, the healthcare system in Latin America, particularly where you have rolled out Pegasi, where you have you know intimate knowledge, and sort of paint us a picture for what was broken uh, as it pertains to you know data integration, healthcare data. Well, and, and that's a very good question, Logan, or a very good uh, message. Uh, that the idea is that uh, when you see, see Latin America from other parts of the world, you start to think that it's the same region with very similar qualities to each country. But the fact is that every country is completely different. Um, 
you have different laws and different systems. For example, uh, there are some countries in Latin America that have uh, a social security. There are countries that don't have social security, but uh, securities are paid directly with the workers' wages. So that makes uh, an array of systems are completely different. The, the fact that still remains in each of those countries, and it's quite similar, is that uh, information on the healthcare sector is uh, completely siloed. Uh, you have hospitals that don't communicate with each other. Most of records are paper-based records. And the idea of having uh, some sort of unified healthcare uh, system and at some levels in Latin America remains as an utopia, uh, considering that many of those centers still work in paper. So there is no ability for them to create uh, formats that could digitize that information and share them so you can have a better patient attention. Uh, and that's and the reality that we're trying to transform in Latin America. Yeah, and at a very practical level, kind of walk us through how Pegasi addresses that challenge. Yeah, and it's very interesting that we first engage with the stakeholders in the institution and try to pinpoint which are the, the more specific pain points that you could address uh, in order to speed up the implementation process in their clinic. Like if you have someone that sees a very a great benefit from the protocol service that they are acquiring, they are much uh, more... Um, willing to uh, change other processes inside of the system. So uh, on the first side, we do there, there's a lot of weight for what we do on the implementation process. And then, for example, let, let's say we evidence that agenda and missed consultation is the, the most important pain point in that institution. So we transform that process first. Then, for example, we go to the EHR transformation. Uh, and then we go to administrative transformation uh, using Pegasi tools uh, in order to streamline the processes and integrating all of the information into a single funnel that involves the patient in their clinical decision support. So uh, that means that in the end, we start going from what's like what's the fire inside of the inf inside of the institution, and then rolling out other uh, capabilities that allow that institution to become 100% digital in, a, in a, an average time between six to 12 months. Mm. Now, I understand, oh, I love that you have focused not just on the technology side, but on the human side of implementation. And I, have, and I know that you have um, a background in journalism in addition to technology. And I wonder how that, that background, as a content creator, as a writer, as um, uh, someone who appreciates story uh, and and just the human side of the of of, uh, of storytelling, how that has informed the way you think about uh, the human side of integrating technology like this. Well, and, and that's very important, Logan, and and that's something that I try to convey to all the people that work with me in Pegasi. Uh, the transformation begins from willingness. Uh, as we talk in startup health in, in the circles, um, there's a, a mood that a person has that's transacted mood. So uh, in order for you to transact and to be thinking about transforming for a better, uh, for, for, for performing a better service, 
then you probably need to uh, be very aware that the thing that is being solved by this third party that you are hiring is something that will allow you first to have a better quality of life since you're going to be looking at uh, a lot less work. Second, that you're going to be providing much better care for your patients. And a third and most important, that this is going to uh, increase the revenue from the organization. So in every step that you take inside of the organization, you have to focus on uh, getting people in this transactive mode. Like, so they are willing to uh, invest their time and limited energies into creating a better institution for themselves, for the patients, and uh, for, for the institution itself. So, uh, do, you have any, do you have any sort of like tricks uh, you use that you have in your back pocket for sort of getting people to switch their mindset? Yeah, I think the first one is just listening. Um, I, I think uh, we entrepreneurs uh, like to, and we are accustomed to speaking high volumes about what we do and uh, our, the, the quality of our products and services. And uh, I think one of the missed qualities that you need to have when you are implementing is listening to, to the customer, listening to their needs, to their pain points, and knowing where to focus your, your intention and, and this first part that generates a great experience so they are willing to do the rest of the job. Yeah, I think that's a good segue to talk about how you have uh, refocused the company around oncology. Um, yes. What was it that you heard in, in your listening campaigns and what was it that you saw that caused you to, to hone in on cancer care? Yeah, uh, th there was a very interesting initiative that we were part since uh, September 2019. Uh, there was a, a call for uh, entrepreneurs in the healthcare sector uh, done by Roche, La Roche Laboratories uh, in Mexico. Okay. Uh, I, I got to know of the of the initiative. Uh, it's called Health Tech Builders Lab uh, from Startup Chile. They told me like, hey, you're the, one of the guys on the oncology sector in our generation. So this is something very interesting for you to apply. And they selected five entrepreneurs out of 80 that went to, for the for the for the call. And uh, I was the only non-Mexican uh, entrepreneur that they selected. When I got into that project, which was very interesting, uh, I, I came to know the problem that uh, was have, being had in Mexico uh, for communication between the National Cancer uh, Institute and the National Genomics Medicine Institute. They weren't speaking. Like uh, At some point, you had a patient that had a very, very... Uh, large amount of uh, genomic uh, studies done and uh, that, that information wasn't getting on time to the national cancer institute so by the time that information got there they already had made a decision about the patient's treatment and as you know the the more information you have on the genomic side of the patient you're probably going to create a better treatment plan for them so uh this thing about the their uh, applications not being able to interoperate was creating uh and uh, like was diminishing the, the survival rate for their patients. And at this moment in September 2019, I saw there was a huge opportunity uh, into improving patient care if you center around how to get 
all of the information, whether in my genealogy information, clinical laboratory information, biomarker information, and genomic information in the hands of the physician. So when they made the decision in how to treat the patient, it was the best informed decision possible. And after that time, we started seeing that there was a huge need for digital transformation on the oncology sector. And more and more, we started getting involved in, in, the, in the area. Got it, got it. And, um, and at some point, uh, as you and I have discussed on previous calls, this sort of intellectual concept became very personal. So I want you to tell me a bit about your colleague, uh, Jean-Pierre Garvey. Yeah, uh, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult experience that we have had so far in Pegasi. Um, I used to work with Jean-Pierre since 2010. Uh, I think it was the time uh, he started working with my dad actually um at the point my my dad was also uh on the public sector he was leading technology operations in of the government of miranda in venezuela and he had a, another study uh, a technic a techni technician uh it was jean pierre uh at the time uh jean pierre taught himself how to code in visual.net and my dad saw a huge potential with him in him and we brought him to the company that we had in venezuela for a short amount of time like it was like four to five months or something like that and uh he got hired uh from the national uh treasury in venezuela the the the, the tax uh, department like the irs but the venezuelan version of it and uh for his native region he was from inside of venezuela so he left the company at that time uh, I do have to say that Javier had a, uh, he was an engineer in computation, but in, in computers, uh, in, in computer science, but he also was a lawyer and an accountant. He had three careers, uh, an, an incredible fellow. Um, so, uh, he went and served the Venezuelan IRS for around 10 years. And in 2019, in 2018, he migrated to Peru uh, because the situation in Venezuela got so dire. Like everyone else in Venezuela started migrating. I migrated in 2017. My mom and my dad migrated in 2019. So, uh, and now, right now, it's like six and a half million Venezuelans that have left the country due to the situation that we are in. Um, so, he migrated to Peru first, and he had a very bad, uh, very rough time in Peru. He couldn't find uh, a job that was paying like well at all. So he was doing Uber driving in, in Lima. And he was having a very hard time. And at that point in history, uh, I was working in Pegasi. Uh, I, I recently came to Chile from Mexico to join the Startup Chile program. And uh, my dad told me that uh, Jean-Pierre was looking for a job. I said, like, this is the guy that I need right now. And I asked him to fill the, the the position of a software developer first, like on an entry level, and then he started quickly rising in the ranks of the of the organization. So at the point in 2020, uh, I had some discussions with my previous CTO, and uh, we we ended the parting ways. Like he, he exited the company in 2000 in 2020. And Jean-Pierre filled the role. Like at that time, he had 
the the ability and the knowledge that a person that had experienced microservice architecture would have developed in seven years. And this is something that he developed in two years. And uh, at the point he started being my right hand. Uh, the my, my left hand is Axel, who was coordinating the development department uh, more on the front and back inside. But Jean-Pierre became the main architect of the company uh, on the upward side. Is he older than you? Is he more your father's generation or in between? No, he's uh, he he was three years older than me uh, okay. uh, at the generation. time of yeah at the time of his death he was thirty eight. Mm -hmm. So uh, he became your CTO, um, and where was this in position to your decisions? This was a year after deciding to focus on oncology. Mm, no, this was previous. Uh, he started working on, uh, as the the acting architect, uh, like. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I, I kept the role of CTO on, by my, uh, for myself, as I was coordinating architecture development. Uh, Jean Pierre was coordinating architecture development uh, under my. We, we had comments and we always discussed the type of solutions that we created. He created the the solutions along with the people in his team, and then uh, the other part of the uh, more on the development side uh, relied on Axel who's the other person that was uh, acting chief. Like uh, the, 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 the roles that they had inside of our Scrum team were uh, chapter lead. Uh, yeah, there was the chapter lead on the architecture side and uh, Axel was the East, the chapter lead on the development side. When did John Perry get his first diagnosis? That, that was uh, something that took a long while. Uh, it, I think it was May 2021 when he started having a very, very bad cough. Um, that The cough kept him awake at night. And then he started developing petechia, like uh, the small marks in his uh, skin. And they thought this was related to asthma. He was asthmatic. And uh, the general... Um, Humidity of Lima made him made it made it really hard for him to 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 stay healthy and not fall sick over and over again. So they thought this was related to that, but then he started showing symptoms of anemia and uh, massive headaches. So the, they started doing a lot of tests. I think this was between May and September, and they couldn't locate the the source of the disease. He he was. He started like having a lot of tests being done by an internist, uh, but like he usually had to wait a long time after he got the results for the internist to give him an appointment. So this usually took between seven to fifteen days to review the results of a certain test, and none of the tests were conclusive. At some point, the, the internist thought that he had something that's called a clonic gammopathy, uh, given the signs that he was showing. Uh, and they were desperate. They couldn't find the, the, the source of the disease. Like at some point, uh, he, he started eating a lot of spinach that was uh, recommended to him because of the anemia. Mm. And um, his wife got like really upset about not finding a result. And she paid him a PET scan. Uh, so the, this uh, positronic tomography uh, started uh, when, when we got the results. They were very bad. Uh, he had a around a three three and a half centimeters tumor in his kidney, and they already had metastasized to the lungs and the brain. 
And so he, she, he, 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 he discovered this because his wife got so frustrated that she just took action in order to pet him. Exactly. And the insurance company wouldn't pay for the, for the, for that test. So that test, uh, he had to pay it uh, on his own. Like he had no coverage for that specific test. And, and that was the reality for most of his treatment. Yeah. What was it about the system that uh, made that case? Or why was it that he couldn't get the PET scan when he needed it and that it wasn't paid for? And then the, sort of the follow-up is, uh, is that generalizable to other regions in Latin America? Yeah, I think it's uh, generalized in Latin America as a whole. Uh, there's no incentives, uh, like no marked incentives in the system to pay for early detection. Uh, even if uh, Jean-Pierre's treatments uh, ended up costing his life and being extremely expensive, given the, the stage of the cancer where he was found, uh, there is no lineup of the incentives, either in the public or the private sector, to find, uh, to locate patients uh, with cancer before it becomes too late. So uh, I think it, it's a generalized situation. Like, for example, you have to go through a lot of paperwork in order to get something like a PET scan recommended. And even if you have the, a PET scan and it uh, shows uh, it's negative in, in the results, hopefully, then uh, it's going to be much cheaper for you as a, as a company, uh, as an insurance company, to find a patient on a PET scan that costs uh, $1,500 than to pay for a $40,000 uh, treatment. So uh, even in that situation, uh, medicine in general in Latin America is extremely reactive. Uh, prevent prevention is something that's not taken into account in most of the systems. Even like the Chilean system, which is like, I would say the most advanced uh, system in Latin America, is very precarious in terms of uh, prevention. This is something that's not built into the system. You go to a physician when you're sick, uh, not because you have worrying symptoms, which was uh, Jean-Pierre's case. When was it that he got the uh, results from the PET scan and realized how serious this was? I think it was September 2021. Uh, he sent the results to, uh, to us, to the directives of the company. Uh, one of my directives is uh, Dr. Luis Aspura. He's an MD intensivist uh but he is also a, a man who has worked in, in a lot of the healthcare areas one of the areas that he worked in the past uh 10 years is cancer care so he knows a lot about cancer i i wouldn't say he knows more of a uh, than an oncologist but he knows a lot yeah. so he reviewed the result and he said like this is not good he had something that's called a secondarism, which is the, the clinical term for metastasis. And in his lungs, at, at the time, he had a very early onset in the brain. So I, when we were talking in, in, the, in the direction, uh, in the management of Pegasi about the situation, the situation, we said, like, there's a very slim chance right now that he has to um, walk out of this. You Mm -hmm. Do you remember what you were what you were thinking um, or feeling when you when you received that news? Oh, uh, I, it was a very rough time. We were also going through a very rough time in, in Pegasi in, in general, as we were doing the transition to starting working on oncology. And I remember thinking to myself that 
we didn't get there uh, early enough. Like at, at that time, um, when we, we had the PET scan, uh, Yang had to fight to get his case presented to uh, uh, to an oncology hospital, or a, a hospital that had an oncology department, because the, the one that was covering his uh, area didn't have uh, an oncology specialty. So by the time the case got discussed, the, the discussion, the, the gathering of the evidence and uh, the discussion itself took around two and a half months. And uh, I, I remember thinking to myself, if these guys had a Pegasus tumor board, uh, the decision on Jampier's case could have come two and a half months early. And um, like the studies say that in cancer, for every month that you don't uh, do the you don't start the, the patient's treatment, their uh, survival rate drops between 6 to 13%. So this, this weight of uh, having a firm diagnosis and starting his treatment probably cost him uh, between 13 to 26% of uh, the, the survival rate. And in he, the case of the type of tumor that he had, he had clear cells, uh, kidney, lung, uh, kidney tumor. Uh, if treated between stages one to two, uh, stages zero to two, uh, it has like a 90, 94% survival rate. Uh, but if you, you board it up, it, it, when it's three or four, uh, it's less than 5%. So those months meant uh, Jampier's life. So you got this news and you thought, if we could have gotten this to market sooner, something might have been different. Um, Correct. Help me help me understand the pieces there. Um, did you say a, a tumor board that was a part of your platform? Yes. Uh, uh, talk to me about how that would have sped things up. No, that's great. Um, um, yeah, we, one of the key parts of our oncology information system, uh, Pegasimed, is a, a tool that's called a virtual tumor board. Uh, the virtual tumor board is composed of four uh, modules. The first one connects to the existing EHR uh, and also connects to the radiology information system, also connects to uh, the clinical lab uh, system, the LIS, the LIMS from the anatomical pathology, gets all the information into the same platform and allows you just with a few clicks to prepare a case to be discussed in an oncology board, what's that's called a molecular uh, a tumor board. Okay, so and you can also get the information from, for example, genomic testing delivered directly into the case preparation. So this task usually in in hospital, in hospital is about ten hours per case prepared, and we managed to uh, narrow that down to just one hour to prepare uh, to prepare to properly prepare a single case to be exposed in the tumor board. Um, then the second module allows you to have this conversation or this discussion in order to create a, a firm diagnosis for the patient and create a treatment plan. Uh, usually clinics in, here in Latin America, clinics and hospitals discuss around 14 cases per week per tumor board. Like if you have, for example, people who are discussing uh, genitourinary uh, tumors, they discuss 14 cases. If you have a, a long tumor discussion, that's going to create 14 conclusions. Uh, in our experience right now, we rise the amount of case discussed 
from 14 to 18 uh, of those cases. So there's four extra patients that have an earlier diagnosis and treatment. So, and, so you're, you're able yeah. to use the platform to speed up diagnosis and treatment. Um, yes. That doesn't address the issue. I, and I wonder how you think about uh, in the future addressing this issue of, of negative incentives. You said in this particular situation, the, you know, whoever was paying for the care wasn't incentivized to even seek a faster diagnosis. So how do you, how do you think through that? Yeah, uh, I think there's a, an incentive in, for example, heal, helping, uh, like when you narrow down the amount of work that's being done by the institutions by digitizing the information, and then you start processing that information to create the clinical decision support systems that are based on actual experiences, then you can get faster diagnosis and a large amount of uh, curated data that you can use to train your artificial intelligence algorithm. So that means uh, you can first detect the symptoms earlier, second, diagnose the patient faster and more accurately, and third and final, uh, evidence when the patient is about to enter a catastrophic disease that's probably going to cost a lot of money. So uh, that means that you can have the information ready that will incur, uh, that will make whoever's paying for the treatment, whether the government or insurance companies, not to incur in that cost. And that creates a matrix that uh, incentivizes prevention. Prevention right now in Latin America pretty much doesn't happen, not because you don't want to prevent, but there's actually no way in telling when the patient is at risk of uh, getting into a catastrophic disease. So if you start uh, tracking the patients that are having that catastrophic disease and creating an information matrix or an information algorithm that allows you to detect when they're going to enter, then you have an incentive of preventing because there is an actual uh, measure in how much money as a system could you save. So, uh, and, and it's pretty sad that we're talking about human lives, but uh, usually when you are talking about population health, this is something that's run by the numbers. And if there's an investment that you need to make in order to transform a reactive healthcare system into a preventative healthcare system, then that, uh, if you're doing that equation, you need uh, valid numbers in order to 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 be able to solve the equation itself so that means that if you don't have any track record whatsoever about uh how much could you save there's no way that you are going to create the incentive for investment so the first incentive for investment is actually being able to uh to say a number and how much could you be saving Interesting. Uh, we're talking about these these two issues. One being the incredibly personal story of an individual who ended up losing their life, and then at, on the other end, the need for just hard numbers about cost in order to move the needle on public health measures. And the two are so inextricably linked, aren't they? Yes, that's you correct. You can't move to the individual life change until you really get these um, these big data pieces pulled together. Uh, exactly. Tell me about tell me about the the final months of John Pear's life. Uh, what happened after uh, in the months after uh, your team realized the seriousness of the diagnosis? 
Yeah, he started, uh, as I said, uh, there uh, was a lot of time in his uh, last months that was spent uh, fighting with the insurance company that he had in Peru uh, in order to get care. When he finally got the care approved, uh, he had uh, the, the standardized care for uh, kidney cancer. Uh, it was an oral pill that made him really, really ill. He had to take one per day or a very high dose. Uh, as cor corresponds to a stage four uh, clear cell uh, kidney cancer. And uh, he was really ill all the time. Uh, he felt really bad. He was uh, having massive headaches. At some point he lost, uh, I think it was December, like uh, early December, he lost his ability to speak. Um, in the first uh, few days of adapting to the to the medication, to the to the chemotherapy, where it was really bad. Um, he started getting used to it. Uh, he did uh, three rounds of chemotherapy. Uh, I think the last one was uh, early early March. Uh, but at February, he I I, I remember it was uh, the the final uh, weekend of February. Uh, on Monday, he called me like he said he couldn't work. Uh, he he really. He was in his bed, like really bored. Like he, he was the type of person that would stay awake, like late at night, studying new technologies and new architectures and things that we could create to uh, have a better architecture in Pegasi. And uh, I re he called me like on Saturdays or on Sundays, saying like, "Hey, Luis, when I get better and I get back to work, and I want to implement this and this and that." And uh, it was really strange for me. There was one Sunday that he didn't call me or send me any text or or what uh, or something. And I think uh, this was like the last uh, Sunday in in February. And on Monday he called me really early. He could barely speak, and he told me that he had a seizure, uh, that he fell, that hurt uh, most of his body on the left side. Uh, he had a very huge bruise, and they took him to emergency. And um, they did a full body scan, uh, a tomography, and they saw two tumors in his brain that had metastasized. And uh, he had a conversation with his oncologist, and uh, she told him she told him to start with radiotherapy. So. I think it was uh, most of March was spent on radiotherapy. It was I think it was ten sessions of radiotherapy, and uh, I think it was uh, five days after the session, the, the last one, that uh, he he said like we, he got into a meeting with us and he said like, uh, hey guys, I'm not feeling really well. It's uh, it's really hard for me to talk. Uh, he had I, I remember he had uh, the left side of his uh, lip like completely sealed he wasn't moving it so he had like most of uh, half of his body was paralyzed due to the tumor in his in his head and uh i remember his wife calling me uh, in tears telling me that they found like they they got the results of the latest tomography and there were four the, the electro the, this was was an uh, um electro uh, mri uh, uh magnetic resonance and there weren't just two tumors; there were four. And um, that the, the the oncologist told her that there was nothing to be done, 
that the neurologist that was seeing Jan told him there's nothing to be done, that those tumors are in an inoperable place of the brain. And I, I remember asking a customer of ours in Venezuela that if there was something to be done, and he told me there is nothing to be done here. The, the tumors are placed in places that are inaccessible for a, for a surgery. So uh, we, they sent him home, um, told him to be as good, like uh, told his family to make him as comfortable as possible, but it was just a matter of time. And uh, this was the first uh, Monday of April uh, when his wife called me and said that he died. Uh, in the previous days, that we, we, she was calling me, like they, they spent all of the money that they had uh, in order to pay for his treatment, uh, because most of the treatment had to be procured in the private side. And um, they didn't even have uh, money to have a, a cremation for him. So uh, I, I think that the, the least we could do as a, as a company and as a family was to pay for his funeral services, which is something that uh, I'm glad I had the, the opportunity to do. But it was really hard. Like uh, the whole time I saw that he had the willingness to go back to work because he loved what he did and he couldn't. He just couldn't. And that was really, really, really rough. How old was he when he passed away? 38. 38. Wow. Um, sorry, your team had to go through that. Yeah. Um, Luis, is this just a, um, just a really tragic story for your team, or does this change your trajectory and really um, imprint on the future of Pegasi? And in what way? No, I, I think uh, we as a team, had the chance to uh, be on the front seat of something we could have prevented. Jean-Pierre included. Like he said, like, and several times, like he said, if uh, our technology was in the hands of the physicians are seeing, us, seeing me and talking to my family, this wouldn't have be happening. Like I would have found out that I have cancer before, uh, before I did, and I will have much better opportunities to to challenge this and to overcome the disease or the, the condition. So um, we got to see in first, first hand how badly structured the system is, how derailed are the incentives, and how, how much does a single month affect the survival chances of an oncology patient. Like and there's something I didn't tell you, but uh, at, at some point I, I think uh, the the physician that was pursuing Jean-Pierre the internist uh, had him to be uh, had an echography of him, like a complete body echography, mm -hmm. and the echographist detected the 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 lump on his kidney, and the echographist I remember Jean-Pierre telling me that told him that he didn't like that, and the internist said like ah but. That's that's something that's probably a deformity that you had at birth, mm -hmm. since birth, and he didn't get that checked because the internist didn't have the incentives to actually check out if that lump was actually cancer. So we we got to experiment at first hands. What would have happened if that internist had the resources and the push uh, against him to? Early detect 
what was John Pierce this? And, and that would have been an incentive, and that would have meant that John Pierce got an early detection and an in, a drastic increase in survival rate. You know, every founder of every startup uh, comes against major obstacles and pitfalls in their journey. I can only imagine that this is going to really live on in your mind when you come up against one of these hurdles. Yes. Yeah, if we were able to, like, we, we are just uh, gathering our bearings <laughs> in, in Pegasi and, and uh, because uh, Jean-Pierre was something that uh, was later explained by a mentor that uh, the term is superhero. We all in our startups have one or two of those people that take five, six mantles on themselves and make things work in the early stages where you cannot have 20 employees. And uh, Jean-Pierre took on his own to redeem what wasn't built when our former CTO left the company. And he studied day and night in order to make those things right. And now that we don't have him, uh, it's been really, really hard to encompassing the, the, the breadth of the things that he did. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of things that were done by him that we didn't know. So yeah. at this point, it's always, like... It, it's, always it's, the way it, it's always the way it is with your, with your best team members, isn't it? Exactly. And yeah. there's a yeah. lot of nostalgia when we go into our uh, code repository and we start doing some code archaeology, like we are Indiana Jones in there, and uh, we start finding code snippets that were written by him that are genius. Mm -hmm. We say, like, how did he get this incredible idea uh, to solve this issue? Mm -hmm. There's so much of him in, in Pegasi. There's mm -hmm. so much of his mind and his heart, and uh, there's no way we in Pegasi let this slide um, yeah. we have to Luis, make it better for cancer patients in his mouth Luis, that's a beautiful note to end on um uh john pair will, will live on in pagasi in the code but then also in your health moonshot mission to bring faster better care to cancer patients all around the world starting in latin america so uh thank you for sharing this story with me this, this is still fresh i know um, but it really speaks to the mission that you're on and how important it is. So I, I thank you. No, and, and thank you very much, Logan, to, for the time uh, to share this story. And uh, I think uh, the, 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 the goal is the moonshot. Mm -hmm. um, the goal is to change things for patients so they don't have to experiment the, the sad reality that Jampier had to go through. Exactly. Luis, thank you so much. Keep pushing. Uh, we can't wait to see what you uh, come out with next with Pegasi. And uh, we wish your team all the best. Thank you very much, Logan. And, and you guys at Startup Health, have a, thank you very much for the, your continuous support. You're, you're the best. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Be well. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. 
If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 380 companies, go to startuphealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Impact Fund in collaboration with AngelList, go to healthmoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.